Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This week's bonus episode is a little walk down memory lane on the subject of all things online and digital, otherwise known as the interwebs. We do hope you enjoy it. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. Well, let's let's stay with this internet nerd kind of theme here. Inputmag.com is ready to make you feel old because do you remember Neon Cat? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's 10 years old. Okay. Oh. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's fine. Mortality comes for us all. <laughs> well, to be fair, that's not the salient point of this article. Uh, Input Mag is kind of on its 10-year retrospective of Neon Cat, and it's looking at Chris Torres of Dallas, huh. and he created it back in April 2011. So it's a really nice retrospective that kind of goes into like how it was born, how it evolved, and even how he actually got some money from it, despite how difficult it is for people who make memes or viral content to really get the monetary compensation that the popularity typically warrants. So so he did it, huh? Well, it took about 10 years, but he's done <laughs> he's it. now. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So at the time, he was a digital artist with a very small following on his website, LOL Comics. A few weeks earlier, after a disastrous magnitude 9.0 earthquake hit Japan, which unleashed that massive tsunami, he set yeah. up an impromptu charity live stream where he would doodle viewers' requests while taking in donations for the Red Cross. He had one fan who requested a cat, and then another fan requested a Pop-Tart, and lo and behold, he decided to combine the two ideas <laughs> into one doodle. It was a gray cat that looked like his own pet named Marty, but with a pink Pop-Tart body. I know you have it in your head right now. It's smiling as it prances through space and it leaves behind a rainbow trail in its mist as though it were a shooting star. However, some fans mm -hmm. say the cat appears to be farting rainbows. <laughs> Regardless of what you think the cat is doing, it wasn't until April 5th that a YouTuber mashed up this gif with a song called Nyan 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 Nyan, nyan by a virtual Vocaloid, <laughs> which is a computerized singer. Uh -huh. And that was the birth of Nyan Cat, as we know it today. And it's not like cats have been absent from the internet, right? We've had sure. Grumpy Cat, Coughing Cat, mm -hmm. Keyboard Cat, Kitty Cat Dance. But by the summer of 2011, Nyan Cat was everywhere. There were cosplays. There was an official video game. YouTube had even added a custom Nyan Cat progress bar to the video. But for Torres, being Nyan Cat guy wasn't always Pop-Tarts and Rainbows. <laughs> he was traveling the world. He was attending different meme conferences and cat video conventions. Wow. But it was difficult to balance the demands of being a meme creator with those of his day job. And so there came a point later where he just had to choose. Do I stick with this insurance adjusting or do I give it a chance and see where Nyan Cat takes me? <laughs> he eventually decided he put all his time and energy into this and it was the best choice he ever made. 
decade. So he was going to all these meme conferences like RaffleCon, and he would make new friends who were on similar roller coasters of internet virality like Keyboard Cat and Scumbag Steve. Do you guys remember Scumbag Steve? It's like the guy in the doorway and he's wearing this fancy hat and coat and he's used for a lot of like Chad memes. Oh, I do know that one. Yeah, Yeah, I wasn't wasn't picturing it until you said Chad memes. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, Yeah, counterpart to good guy Greg. (laughs) They all have names and I don't know them, but it's I know them when I see them. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. there's a distinct difference between going viral for cat content like Neon Cat or going viral for a photo of yourself like Mm -hmm. Scumbag Steve, Mm -hmm. whose actual name is Blake Boston. (laughs) I don't know that that's much better. Like, you know, I feel for the guy, but. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, to become famous for a meme that changes the name but calls you a scumbag, that's kind of smart a little bit. And the history of Scumbag Steve was that in 2011, a photo from his amateur high school rap album, and he's wearing a backward snapback (laughs) hat, an oversized fur coat, and he became the butt of the Internet's jokes, his face associated with scumbag behavior, like going to a high school party when you're 25, which, to be clear, is not the origin of that photo. It's just an association that has kind of come about, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, all these meme guys would go out and people would be like, oh, scumbag Steve, I need to take your photo. And when it came to Torres, the neon cat guy, he didn't tell anybody who he was. Scumbag Steve would get all the attention. Someone would recognize him everywhere they went. And so he really enjoyed the ability to remain anonymous in public. But there was one common hurdle he shared with all the meme creators, which is maintaining ownership of the work, right? Like within two Mm -hmm. weeks of posting neon cat, he was already fighting to prove his copyright. People were filing forms to copyright the image, and it took him two years to prove ownership of his work, and it wasn't easy. The problem became public in November 2012 when Warner Brothers and Fifth Cell released the video game Scribblenauts Unlimited. Does anyone remember this game? No. Mm -hmm. Great game. Okay. I'm really showing my nerd cred in this episode. <laughs> right. Like, absolutely. I know that game. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are different levels of the nerd spectrum. I remember Neon Cat. And when I told my husband, hey, it's 10 years old, he goes, what's 10 years old? So, you know, we, we're all on a spectrum right. of nerdiness yeah. here. Regardless, when Warner Brothers and Fifth Cell released this Scribblenauts Unlimited game, it included Neon Cat and Keyboard Cat as characters, but they did not ask permission from Torres and Charlie Schmidt, who was the person mm-hmm. behind Keyboard Cat. So, They sued for a violation of copy and trademark rights, and they received a settlement for an undisclosed sum in 2013, a year later. Obviously, they're not at liberty to discuss the settlement, but there was little money involved. Sure. So over the years, Torres continued to iterate on Nyan Cat. Between 2012 and 2016, he made Nyan Cat gifts with New Year's glasses. In 2019, the game Nyan Cat Lost in Space, originally created in 2011 as an app, was released for the Nintendo Switch. You can play that probably today. But the most important recent development of Neon Cat is that it became an NFT, a non-fungible token. Wow. Yeah. So Foundation, which is a highly exclusive platform for NFT artists, released Chris Torres's remastered Neon Cat as an NFT. And on February 19th, the GIF sold for 300 Ethereum, which is worth about $574,000 at the time of the sale. Yeah. Time to get out of that market. 
it now. Like, sell <laughs> and get out because that's right. That's right. Diversify now. That's a different story from my financial <laughs> advice universe. Anyway, Torres still lives in Dallas. He's a self-employed digital artist. And after his landmark sale, other meme makers who never got proper attribution for their work started reaching out. And within days, he was getting emails from dozens of creators. And they all had the same story where they made something big and it got away from them and they wanted some way to get it back and have proper attribution for their work. And so in March, he collaborated with Foundation to host a week of auctions dubbed hashtag meme economy. So he worked with meme creators, many of whom he first met at places like RaffleCon and helped them understand the process of selling their works as NFTs. Those sales auctioned off NFTs of Bad Luck Brian, Coffee <laughs> Cat, Scumbag Steve. I mean, even Scumbag Steve sold his image for about 30 Ethereum, which is about 57 grand. And not bad. Right. Yeah. He, he tweeted, whoever this buyer is, thank you. You have no idea what this means to me and my two boys. Adding, Aww. meme life just got sweet as F word. And Aww. I'm saying F word, but he, he <laughs> sure, typed out the yeah, whole yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> He's Scumbag Steve. Of course he used the real word. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, to see him get some monetary compensation after being understood and recognized by the world as a scumbag, man, yeah. I wish he would have made more. <laughs> so that's what years of humiliation is worth, is about 57000 Okay. All right. That's it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no. See, I'm very curious about the person who added the music. Like, at what point does Neon Cat as a whole stop being his? You know what I mean? Right. Because it was his as Pop-Tart Cat, but it really yeah. was adding that song. I mean, right now, it just has the accreditation to a YouTuber named Sarah J00N. You know, maybe she'll come and try to get a little bit of credit for it, but I'm not a copyright intellectual property lawyer. I doubt even sure, lawyers yeah. today would be able to say something conclusive, but uh -huh. it's nice to see these viral meme creators actually getting some money. <laughs> Assuming they sell off their Ethereum, because right now they don't have money. Like They, they have <laughs> another ridiculous thing that is not real, and that's just... Super fair. I will amend that to say it's nice to see the meme creators getting credit. Right, that's something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Are you all familiar with encrypted or privacy apps like Telegram or Signal? I've heard yeah, of Signal. Signal. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, that company in particular, Signal, just tried to run the most honest Facebook ad campaign ever and immediately got banned, according to Gizmodo. Oh. Huh. <laughs> to be fair, these were a series of Instagram ads, but we all know that Instagram is owned by Facebook now. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Signal is a privacy positive platform. But the ads were booted in part because it targeted users using Instagram's own ad tech tools and the ads made very transparent what those data privacy points were. So for example, they had an ad that said, you got this ad because you're a newlywed Pilates instructor and you're cartoon crazy. Huh. Wow. <laughs> so it was a super simple campaign idea, right? So because yeah. Instagram and Facebook share the same ad platform, any data that gets sucked up while you're scrolling Insta or Facebook Facebook feeds, it gets fed into the same, well, Gizmodo uses the word cesspool of data, <laughs> which can be used to target you on either platform. And so across mm. these platforms, you can also target people using basic details like age, what city you might live in, but also granular stuff like whether you're looking for a new home, whether you're single or whether you're really into energy drinks. A hmm. couple of other ones were, you got this ad because you're a K-pop loving chemical engineer. This ad used your location <laughs> to see you're in Berlin and you have a new baby and just moved. 
and you're really feeling those pregnancy exercises lately. Wow. wow. Super specific. You got this ad because you're a teacher, but more importantly, you're a Leo and single. This uh. ad used your location to see you're in Moscow, and you like to support sketch comedy, and this ad thinks you do drag. So it gets into these super, you know, minute data things, and they, you know, if an ad was targeted towards London-based divorcees with degrees in art history, the ad said so. <laughs> but Facebook was not a fan of this sort of transparency into its system. So mm -hmm. while the company hasn't yet responded to Gizmodo's request for comment, Signal's blog post says the ad account used to run these ads was shut down before the ads could reach the target audiences. And then according to an update in response to Signal's blog, where they kind of made transparent this attempt and then cancellation, Facebook denied that it suspended Signal's account for running the ads and accused the organization of pulling a PR stunt. So according to Facebook, they said this is a stunt by Signal, who never even tried to actually run these ads, and we didn't shut down their ad account for trying so. So if Signal had tried to run the ads, according to Facebook, a couple of them would have been rejected because their advertising policies prohibit ads that assert you have a specific medical condition or sexual orientation, as Signal should know. <laughs> In response to that, Signal said on Twitter, we absolutely did try to run these ads. These are real screenshots, as Facebook should know. So uh, <laughs> getting a little hot. If you want to follow that, I'm sure you can uh, check out social media and see what kind of barbs they're trading. But I think a lot of this is kind of piling on with that iOS update that requires users to opt in mm -hmm. to ad tracking, which has basically resulted, I want to say I saw an article that said something like only 4% of global users have opted in. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is most people, it's just a lack of awareness, which makes is what makes this so great from Signal because people don't really understand how much they know about you. And exactly. And by making it transparent by saying, hey, this is the stuff we toggled and this is what we think we know about you because of this. Yeah. And if you have a Facebook account, I do recommend you set up an ad account because it's free. You don't need to run any ads before you get access to the demographic profiling options in the ad manager. Mm -hmm. uh, I've run a couple ads and it is insane. Yeah. Like it is exactly as deep as all those signal ads say. Yeah. It's a little disturbing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or very disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> this ad thinks that you find it moderately disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. So I'll lighten it up a little bit with this article from Nerdist.com. It is titled An Oral History of LOL. Oh. Yeah. So I'll ask first, uh, how do you all pronounce it out loud? Is it like lol, LOL? Do you actually laugh? What, what do you all do? My droll response when I'm not really laughing and I'm being sarcastic is LOL. But if it's like a grudging nod to, okay, that was kind of funny, I'll say lol. I try really hard not to say it at all. Like, <laughs> I, I just instinctively, I'm like, you can't read that out loud. It's, it, you just can't. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's, it's net speak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, if it's out loud, aren't you just laughing out right. loud? Like, then? if I'm laughing, like just... I'm laughing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting how the usage has changed over time. And that's what we're going to dig into in this article. And that was mostly for my curiosity because I'm going to be saying LOL a lot. Right. right okay. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> phrases like ASL and TTYL might have bit the dust post chatroom era, although I personally still say TTYL occasionally. But there's one term from the early days that continues on as a major part of our lexicon, which is LOL. It's an acronym, a verb, and it literally means fun in the Dutch language, which I did oh. not realize. Oh. So 
When exactly did it hit the World Wide Web? It depends on who you ask. There is a former Canadian student named Wayne Pearson who claims he coined the phrase in the early to mid-1980s. He says that he used it on a now-defunct bulletin board view line, and it was in response to a friend making him truly laugh out loud. And <laughs> he believes that LOL spread across the platform and into other platforms as view line users moved to Genie and AOL, but there's no record, unfortunately, of Pearson's initial usage, and he even admits that he doesn't expect anybody to believe his story. Mm. But we can find the first documented use of LOL in Fido News, which is a newsletter that's still in print today. A May 1989 edition featured pre-emoji icons to convey a wide range of emotions, along with several initialisms like LOL, and there were other familiar phrases like BRB, BTW... But there's an image here of the Fido News list of emoticons, and there's a number of very fun ones I haven't seen in forever, like devil slash guilty, which is right bracket colon and then right pointy bracket, Mm. uh, which gives you a little (laughs) devil horns with the sly little (laughs) smile. Another one is hug, which I haven't, I'm not sure I even knew about. It's just two closed brackets, like two arms, I guess. So it's kind of almost like ASCII art. Yeah, exactly. And there's... U for just a glass, capital Y for a wine slash cocktail glass. Uh, Apparently H was just, huh, back in the day. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, that was very interesting. This comes all the way back from 1989, and there's a bunch of others in the article you can check out. But the Oxford English Dictionary confirms the earliest documented use of LOL on Usenet as a 1993 post about walking out of the movies. And the text says, lol, dot, 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 damn, that's even worse. Ba ha 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 ha. And that's with a space between each ba and ha. (laughs) So the OED also reveals that the San Diego Tribune also mentioned LOL in a 1993 article and says that someone who cracks a joke might get an LOL in response. (laughs) This may not be the first instance of an article deeming LOL a rising catchphrase, but this is kind of around the time that confirms its expansion into the public consciousness. Mm -hmm. And this ascent took place long before we had free unlimited text messages and microblogs actually had character limits. So it's no surprise that people grab gravitated towards shortened forms of communication. Mm -hmm. PhD candidate of linguistics Rachel Elizabeth Weisler offered Nerdist a deeper perspective on why LOL and other acronyms became critical components of internet and mobile language. She says, the whole point of language and communication is about getting what you need to say to the other person. You want to do it fast. You want to do it clearly. And one assumption is actually that children or younger generations were using shortened acronyms like LOL and ROFL, which I always pronounce in my head as ROFL. Yeah, Raffle. Mm -hmm. But the research shows that adults are actually the ones using them more in text form, which may be because, you know, back in the days when you had a flip phone and you had to press a button to get one letter, Mm -hmm. you might want to do all these different shortcuts and it just kind of sticks. But the subsequent rise of modern social media websites like MySpace, Facebook, and Twitter, which were 2003, 2004, and 2006, respectively, uh, which kind of, yeah, blew my mind thinking about. That's so recent. I know, right? Yeah. And around 2017, the first instances of lolcats and lolspeak began to surface on 4chan. And lolcats would feature images of cats doing funny or adorable things for, I guess, any listeners who are not familiar with it. We know what lolcats are. If you don't, just Google it. It's a fun time. Uh, And so lolspeak became its own language with accepted spelling, syntax, grammar, and even font choices, which Mm -hmm. led to academic analyses and lolcat itself becoming a part of the Oxford 
Oxford English mm-hmm. Dictionary in December of 2014. So it's largely associated with countries where English is a predominating language, but there's also versions of LOL that show up around the world. Uh, people in France use MDR, which stands for Mort de Rire or Died of Laughter. <laughs> so the question is, you know, why do we love the phrase so much? How has it survived the test of time? And if anyone knows the answer, it's Gretchen McCulloch, who is a internet linguist and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. And she told Nerdist, there's all sorts of words that get invented at any given point, and only a few of them take over and become a part of cultural consciousness. And a few factors have been proposed by Alan Metcalf in his book, Predicting New Words. One of them that I think applies to LOL is that in order for something to really catch on, it shouldn't seem too clever. It should just seem kind of unremarkable. Mm. And so sometimes people come up with really clever acronyms or really clever new words, and everyone's like, oh yeah, that's really clever. Then no one actually uses it because it seems very sort of self-important to use, which I think is a pretty interesting point. Yeah, it's too cutesy. I can see that for sure. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. But she believes that lol is very functional. It expresses something that didn't quite have a way of being expressed before in an obvious sort of way. And there's a lot of things in what she thinks of as the lol family that all became more popular in internet writing, like haha, which kind of existed before the internet, but wasn't popular in the same sort of way. And I don't know about y'all, but for me, like, I feel like all of these different things are have very different connotations. Yeah. Yeah. If you're using ha ha ha, he he, or if you're doing the lol, 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 lol thing. Um, <laughs> if you've debased yeah. yourself to that point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> McCullough says that there's this tendency for LOL to become a bit aspirational. So your friend sends something that's funny and you're not quite in the mood to laugh. You could send LOL, even though you're not necessarily laughing, to say that was funny. According to human estimators who've looked at laughter, you know, the uh, human laughter estimators. Oh, yeah, uh, those guys. Only, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We only really laugh 20% of the time at something that's an actual joke. And if you look at how people laugh in conversation, it's often just to acknowledge each other or taper over in awkward moment. Mm-hmm. And you're laughing really to build solidarity with each other. Despite the many additions to the LOL family, LOL appears to be here to stay. Facebook believes that LOL died in 2015, apparently, but that proclamation Hmm. was based on use within their website alone and a small, specific set of data. And I can tell you personally, having been on Twitter a lot recently, that LOL is alive and well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And it's not on Facebook because who's really cracking a smile when they go there anymore? (laughs) Yeah, very true. Very true. Well, and the demographics of Facebook skew a lot older now, too. Yep. Mm -hmm. And we all know adults don't laugh. I mean, there's no sense of humor for the 40 and up crowd, right? Right, guys? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there tends to be a strict divide between casual slash informal language and professional language, which is of particular interest to Weisler, who specializes in African-American vernacular English and other minoritized or marginalized English varieties. And she says that all these language varieties are valid, and the crux of societal beliefs about what is standard or professional is historically established by white people. In fact, Mm -hmm. both Weisler and Calhoun note that black linguists are overwhelmingly rare across the board, and Mm -hmm. LOL is unique in that it's a universal term that spans across internet users from all socioeconomic levels. Hmm. 
So as our world becomes increasingly virtual, the lines may falter or blur between internet and professional language. I don't know, man. If I get a business email that's signed with LOL, I think I'm still going to take that less seriously. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'll, I'll cop to occasionally I will drop an LOL in like an internal email right. to like my team. Like if we're like, hey, clients still haven't gotten back to us with their edits, LOL. But right. again, yeah. that comes down to like my overwhelmingly sarcastic usage of LOL. Right. You're not a, genuinely laughing. <laughs> no, no. It's like the elbow nudge of like, you get me? Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes on to talk about this, actually, which is that in these more informal settings, like in Slack or Gchat, you can sometimes find LOL slipping into internal communications. But the author here in this interview is expressing that they think that the lines will always be there because people are interested in maintaining the social hierarchies that are created by deeming certain languages professional and other languages as inappropriate, Mm -hmm. which is a power thing. You know, people at the top can say the way I talk is professional. So everyone else needs to speak, text and email like me. But you know, that's one of the things that's hinted at here, which is that you never know, maybe in 100, 200 years from now, assuming we all survive, you could see these terminologies getting blended into professional conversation as they become normalized. And yeah, I'm looking, I'm waiting for the press release that's like GMC Motors lulled today as Tesla. I feel like I'm I'm going to be that old person who's just like, no, I refuse to be involved in this changing world. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure I'd be there with you if I'm being completely honest. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, you know, that was a really good and inspiring article, and I kind of want to stay in that theme. Um, (laughs) There's a really great article from The Guardian called Science Museum Asks Public to Help Identify Mystery Items. Oh. There are about 7.3 million items from photographs to devices that form the collection of the Science Museum Group. And a lot of these items have come to light because they've been transported. There have been about 300,000 items transported from the Blythe House in London to a purpose-built facility at the Science Museum Group's National Collection Center in Wiltshire. It's like a huge house move project, but with the added excitement that these objects are part of the National Collection and have incredible stories to tell, but a lot of these are still not very well understood. So some that they have found were a Chinese incense clock, which is a device with small square metal tray and maze-like stencils that had been something of a head until a curator who had spent time in China took a look, and the mazes were basically used to create a trail of incense that would burn for a specific length of time. Hmm. So the way that it works is the incense is burned, there are different fragrances and different fragrant notes throughout the incense wick, and these scent-based time-measuring devices were often used during rituals or ceremonies. But there are a whole bunch of other things that they cannot figure out a story for. So in some cases, they've reached a dead end. And that's where it would be amazing to see whether the wider public, the hive mind of the public, can help us unpick some of these mysteries. And so they've got a gadget with a base that looks like a hat stand and a hook at the top, a semicircular scoop-like device on a handle, and a metal object in a silken box that is said to be an air purifier presented to Pope Leo VIII. Hmm. So there are a whole bunch of things on here. Often the only thing they'll know about the object is what potentially Sir Henry Welcome, who was the huge eclectic object gatherer, he died in 1936 and bequeathed a whole bunch of this kind of stuff. And so what they know is maybe what he would have known at the time when it was sold to him or bought to him by one of his agents or presented at auction. 
but a lot of that isn't really verified or has any kind of provenance documentation to back it up. So because this guy, this collector, was drawn to strange and curious objects, they're expecting a lot of these to be kind of very one-off, unique, experimental things. They are likely to be the kind of thing that maybe only one or two people in the world have ever seen before, because that is the kind of thing he was after. Mm -hmm. He was after the edges of the human experience. So they've got them listed up in the Guardian Gallery for images. You can drop them a line if you have an idea on Twitter, at Science Museum. No idea how they got that handle. Good for them. <laughs> um, and they've also got an email as well if you have an idea of what it's going to look like. So go on, take a gander, and submit your best ideas. I mean, I guess we're assuming from the outset that none of them are uh, UFO pieces. Like, we... You know, that last article got me thinking it could be one of those things that travelers dropped off a long, long time ago. <laughs> Nothing else like it exists. We don't know what it was used for, but it certainly warrants a little bit more investigation. Yeah. Next link. Next link. Well, this pandemic has been very difficult, understatement of the year, for a lot yep. of people. But <laughs> if you are a Goldman Sachs executive that made <laughs> millions from Dogecoin, maybe oh. you can go ahead and just call it a vacation because uh, <laughs> there was one executive who quit after making millions from Dogecoin. And oh, I hope he sold. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's sort of the key here. Like, you can only make the millions if you actually realize those gains mm -hmm. by yeah. Converting it back into cash. The crypto asset, Dogecoin in particular, is down more than 30% this week. We have Elon Musk and his appearance on SNL in large part to thank for that. But even with that, it is still up by more than a thousand percent from the start of 2021, which is wow. enormous. Aziz McMahon, which is like the coolest wrestler name I could ever imagine. <laughs> uh, he's a managing director and head of emerging market sales, and he just resigned after making money from investing in Doge. Some of you may know Dogecoin was backed by famous supporters, including Elon Musk, Snoop Dogg, and the Kiss bassist Gene Simmons. So if you'd like for your investment philosophy to follow some steadfast, financially literate <laughs> celebrities like that, go ahead and look into it. This digital asset is based on an internet meme. Yep. And on this occasion, it's a dog called Doge. The cryptocurrency rose above 72 cents against the dollar last week in anticipation of Musk's SNL appearance, but it plunged more than 30% this week since the appearance to about 50 cents, according to Coindesk. However, that's still up by more than a thousand percent because a joke is born with no value until we decide that it has some. <laughs> Y'all, I have something to admit. <gasps> Do you? I bought 120,000 Dogecoin in 2018 and I sold it wow. because, I don't know, it just took too long. But I bought it because I thought in this universe where Trump right. is elected and all these other things have <laughs> happened, it is absolutely 100 the case that Doge is going to take off because yeah. life is a cosmic joke. Like, exactly. Life loves irony. So please, please carry on talking about how much money all these other people are making. <laughs> right, right, right. Because well, you sold a little too early is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Oh. yeah. And, and that's the thing that I think is like where the real cognitive dissonance is. It took an executive at Goldman Sachs to know how to hold and sell because he has experience in emerging markets and emerging market sales. 
And so when you have high volatility, and this is me putting on a little bit of my money hat here, you have to approach it like a scholastic experience like you did, Way. But the key is to make sure that you have a benchmark in mind and at least liquidate 50% when you hit that benchmark, at least. So <laughs> we don't actually know how much money McMahon made from betting on Dogecoin, but <laughs> sources said they believed it was a substantial sum and mm. he had since left Goldman Sachs. They believe he made this investing on his own personal account and was not involved in trading cryptocurrencies for the institution itself. You know, crypto, it's an interesting exercise. Right. Well, part of the deal is like it goes viral and becomes a thing that everybody's heard about. But like Way knows, it's been around for a while. Exactly. And it's been a long time being worth nothing. And exactly. That's, <laughs> that's what people don't really recognize. They're like, oh, it's here and it's suddenly big. So the next thing that's suddenly here is going to be suddenly big. No. It's like, no, man. Exactly. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who have, you know, since Doge and Bitcoin have become increasingly mainstream are coming up with their own that are essentially scams or Ponzi schemes where they mm -hmm. know it has, you know, no intrinsic value. And that's true of all crypto. There is no intrinsic value. There's only the value that we or others ascribe to it. But those can be very fleeting. So be aware, do your homework, unless you want to go whole hog, in which case we just will agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, let's try to set our minds at ease a little bit after uh, a somewhat upsetting selection of articles today. <laughs> uh, some, some good news. AP says it will no longer name suspects in minor crimes. Uh, this comes from APNews.com, a little bit of a self-serving article since they're talking about themselves, but still important. The Associated Press said it will no longer run the names of people charged with minor crimes out of concern that such stories can have a long, damaging afterlife on the internet that can make it hard hmm. for people to move on with their lives. Mm -hmm. In so doing, one of the world's biggest news gathering organizations has waded into a debate over an issue that wasn't really much of an issue before the rise of search mm -hmm. engines when finding information on people meant going through physical media. So mm -hmm. often the AP will publish a minor story like, and these are the examples they cite in the article, say about a person arrested for stripping naked and dancing drunkenly atop a bar. Mm. And something like this will hold some brief interest regionally or even nationally and be forgotten by the next day. But the name of that person arrested will live on forever online, right. even if the charges are dropped or the person is acquitted. Rarely mm -hmm. do we get that follow-up saying, ah, this was a mistake, or oh, they right. were misbooked. Exactly. So basically, the AP sent a directive out to its journalists across the country, said, don't name suspects or transmit photographs of them in brief stories about minor crimes when there is little chance the organization will cover the case beyond the initial arrest. So if this is mm. a story that doesn't look like we're going to be covering after it, why make a permanent record that we've mm -hmm. been threatened with since being in grade school, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I'm on board with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I so I mean, because the thing is, some of that stuff is still public record through police searches. Sure. And I made the mistake of like, oh, this will be fun, like searching for people I know in certain police records. And I found results that I did not want to have found. Nope. And yeah, I was just like, oh, I, sh I shouldn't have done this. I really <laughs> should not have looked up these people. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so the AP is kind of wising to this. So they're also not going to link to local newspaper or broadcast stories about such incidents where the arrested person's name or mugshot might be used. So they're also looking at this as kind of a web ecosystem SEO situation, not 
just the work they're putting out, right? Mm -hmm. um, the AP will also not do stories driven mainly by particularly embarrassing mugshots. And I'm mm -hmm. recalling sort of like mugshot magazines you could pick up at 7-Eleven yeah. in Denton or whatever. I remember that being a particular thing. And, you know, it's cheap and tawdry entertainment, but truly damaging for the amount oh, of yeah. like, you know, schadenfreude uh, it can give us. The policy will obviously not apply to serious crimes like those involving violence or abuse of the public trust or even cases of a fugitive on the run. And so they're hoping that by making this change, it will have a ripple effect and prompt other organizations to stop and take a look at these practices. They found that several other organizations are already doing so, driven in part by requests from people whose time in the news has lived mm. on via the internet, aka take this down. <laughs> uh, for example, the Boston Globe announced earlier this year an appeals process where it would consider on a case-by-case -case basis removing old stories from its archives. However, a lot of people want to be very clear that they're not in the business of rewriting the past. There was a columnist for the Los Angeles Times who wrote that news organizations shouldn't muck around with history, that trying to rewrite the past or even trying to hide from view what has already been reported is almost always a mistake. And so when the AP announced this policy, it had a very vigorous debate on social media, of course. Mm -hmm. Apparently in 2018, a survey conducted by Dwyer, some 80% of news organizations had some policy about removing stories from archives which was up from less than half about a decade earlier. But in some cases, the policies aren't written down, they're not talked about in public, or they're not even publicized in their own newsrooms. And so they haven't really socialized this information within the organizations. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the research that the AP has done has found that a majority of Americans believe they have the right to ask news organizations to remove stories from archives and would expect articles to be updated if charges were dropped. But mm. at the same time, a lot of people believe that an organization's archive would be less trustworthy if it allowed stories to be scrubbed from it. Yeah. I mean, definitely, there's a difference between I tried to rob a bank and <laughs> yes. I behaved in an embarrassing fashion in right. a way that didn't really hurt anybody. Or I took an ugly mugshot. I mean, that, you know. Yeah, truly, yeah. If you had a really over-the-top time at spring break, okay, maybe we can kind of overlook that. But if you have a history of beating your wife, maybe right. people That's ought very to know. Different. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. I don't have a history of beating my wife. Just sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for this bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. <laughs>